first, a little shameless self-promotion. Uh, I just, uh, this morning, I just docu-signed a contract with uh, Regnery Publishing to write a book called The Politically Incorrect Guide to Economics. They have, they have a... They have a whole series. Tom Woods wrote the first one. It was a New York Times bestseller. So I'm thinking of just getting Tom to write this for me and put my name on it to, 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 to sell books. I told him I could get it done by the end of the year, so it'll probably be published next summer. That's sort of the sort of lag there. Because some of you have asked me, some of the students have asked me, are you doing a new book? So that's so, so you don't have to ask me anymore. I made that, made that announcement. Uh, my topic today is necessity and destructionism. And if you picked up a, a copy of Socialism, Mises' book, famous book, Socialism, published in the early 1920s, it's broken into five sections. And section five is called destructionism. Not deconstructionism. That's, that's a philosophical term, but destructionism. And, and so my talk today is uh, to familiarize you with what Mises had to say about this and, and relate it to uh, today's world, and uh, not only today's world, but some of history. And uh, I'm going to read a, a couple of quotes from uh, Mises himself, what, what he's talking about here, destructionism. He says, socialism is not the pioneer of a better and finer world, but the spoiler of what thousands of years of civilization have created. It does not build anything, it destroys, for destruction is the essence of it. It produces nothing, it only consumes what the social order based on private ownership and the means of production has created. Each step leading towards socialism must exhaust itself in the destruction of what already exists. And so he writes about how even in his time, the whole history of socialists, socialism, was to, to try to destroy the existing society that had evolved over maybe sometimes centuries, uh, as far as that goes. And uh, you know, one of his one of his uh, comebacks to the so-called uh, uh, market socialists, by the way, was they they ignore the fact that uh, to uh, for it to have an operating capitalist economy, you have all these institutions, you know, like the insurance industry and the, the stockbroker industry, and all these people gather, you know, a lifetime of information and knowledge in there to be able to perform all these tasks, and you can't just uh, abolish all of that and then pretend to play capitalism without all of these individuals with with all this built up knowledge. And and and, uh, and so that's one of the you know the fatal flaws of so-called uh, destructionism, and he's talking he talks uh, primarily about capital destruction and uh, just the eating up of the capital that had been accumulated and the results of capital accumulation and production, and uh, and you know you can think of many examples. Of course, the Soviets lived off the capital accumulation by of previous generations. That's how they kept the system going for uh, some seventy years. Uh, just eating up, not only eating up the capital that previous uh, Russians had uh, had accumulated, but conquering other countries and eating up their capital, capital too. Uh, the British, uh, when they when they when they uh, ejected Winston Churchill and adopted what they called Fabian socialism after World War II, they did the same thing. They ate up their capital and they destroyed a, a good part of uh, the British uh, economy until you get to the 1970s and the whole world was talking about what was called the British disease, uh, which was uh, not a disease like COVID or anything like that, but it was uh, just the recognition that uh, by nationalizing all those industries, 
they all operated with the, uh, with the compassion of the IRS and the efficiency of the postal service. You know, <laughs> the steel industry, the car industry, the uh, yeah, electricity, everything it was just a mess. And uh, and it was the British. That's how Margaret Thatcher got got elected. Uh, Sweden was as a was a, a great capitalist country uh, in the early late 19th, early 20th century. Uh, still is a capitalist country. It has private enterprise. It just has a giant welfare state, just like America. Uh, I've been surprised to learn over the years, by the way, some of the students who come here, and even some faculty who have come here from Europe, uh, were unaware that we had a big welfare state in America, just like Sweden. Uh, and, and of course, Sweden, uh, uh, they adopted, you know, went, been big in the direction of socialism in the 1950s, and the result, uh, in one of my books, I quote the, uh, the, I guess it's the Swedish version of the American Economic Association. Uh, they, they said that they, there was not any net new job creation for the uh, succeeding 55 years. No, no net job creation on net. As a result, they had very high, you know, several hundred percent in, uh, interest rates in the 1980s. And it was a mess, and they've, they've tried to retract ever since. And of course, uh, Venezuela was uh, was one of the most prosperous countries in Latin America for many years. They're said to have more oil than Saudi Arabia, and it just took them about ten years to totally destroy their economy with socialism under Hugo Chavez and and his uh, successor. And you can go on and on, uh, you, know, you know, chapter and verse after chapter and verse with, with this. And so Mises goes on to say this. Another quote. Uh, progressive capital formation is the only means by which the position of the great masses can be permanently improved, and socialism and destructionism propose to use up capital so as to achieve present wealth at the expense of the future. The policy of destructionism is the policy of the spendthrift who dissipates his inheritance regardless of the future. And we see that a lot today, don't we? If you, when, you, when you look at, read, read today's news about uh, uh, the current administration in the U.S. Uh, redefining infrastructure to mean not bridges and roads, but people, infrastructure. So, so if they want, they're, they're redefining the welfare state as infrastructure spending, reliable, hoping that no one will notice that uh, that a person and a bridge are not quite the same thing, and then that's uh, that's them. And another interesting thing that uh, Mises said here, he said that for for Karl Marx and his followers. He said this, all politics was only the continuation of war by another means. The socialist parties who have taken the Marxist parties for their model have elaborated the technique of agitation, caging for votes and for souls, the stirring up of electoral excitement, street demonstrations, and terrorism. Sounds kind of like Antifa, doesn't it? In the, uh, and uh, and Black Lives Matter. I call it only Black Lives Matter because they, when when uh, when they first became prominent, there were some uh, people on television and radio who were asked, "Well, what do you think about this?" and and they would say the the natural thing that any normal human being would say was that, "Well, of course, all lives matter." Fired, you know, you lose your job, you're canceled by saying that. So I call them only Black Lives Matter. O L O B L M, not B L M. And, and so it sounds very similar to what's going on now, isn't it? Uh, Mies, believe it or not, Mises also talked about the fake news of his day. 
I think, I think it was Trump who coined the phrase fake news or made it popularized anyway. But, but he, and, uh, Mises called them the literati. That's sort of, you know, that was his, his generation's uh, word for this. He said the literati are essentially recruiting agents for socialism since socialism must destroy society and they are paving the way for destructionism. So even in, in his day, in the, the turn of the 20th century, uh, the you know journalists and uh, yeah, and novelists, most novelists, uh, were agents of socialist destructionism. And I wrote a paper years ago about this. There was there were two economists at uh, University of Rochester, Jensen and Meckling. They were, they were really good uh, free market economists. They taught finance, but they also wrote a lot of good good things about capitalism, free enterprise, and produced some good students uh, there. And uh, they had this intriguing paper. I always thought it was uh, uh, very telling about why it is that so many uh, journalists, so-called in the media, are statists. And it's a pretty simple explanation why this is sort of inevitable. And that if you're a, if you're a journalist who writes for a living, a columnist, journalist, uh, the bigger government gets and the more prominent government is in society then your sources, your sources of information to do your job mostly come from the government. If you're a journalist who covers, say, environmental issues, you get your information from the EPA. If you cover labor issues, you get the U.S. Department of Labor. And so if you're too critical of the EPA or the U.S. Department of Labor, you're cut off. You're not going to have a job anymore. And so, and so it's, it's not that they're necessarily ideologues, although many are socialist ideologues. But it's a matter of just of economic incentives that if you want a career uh, in, you know, in a regime of private property and free enterprise uh, and where government is minimal, that wouldn't be quite as true. It might not be true at all. But in today's world, where government is so big and pervasive, it has destroyed freedom of, freedom of speech. Um, the late Milton Friedman wrote an, uh, an article on this topic also, by the way. Uh, I think it was called uh, Free Speech and Free Markets. And his argument was that whenever government becomes so big and pervasive in terms of its regulatory state, then uh, corporations no longer have free speech because they're so fearful of regulatory retribution. And they have to, they have to bribe their way in to, to businesses and they, have to, they can be threatened with taxes that can ruin their business and so forth. And so they too are stifled and, uh, and, and uh, censored uh, you know, implicitly. And that's probably why uh, so many uh, corporations, by the way, uh, uh, to get their views out, um, they, they, they fund think tanks like the Cato Institute and places like that. They try to get them to, to promote their views uh, without uh, seemingly getting their hands dirty in, uh, in, in politics. That hasn't really worked out for them that well, uh, although. And so that's another interesting thing. Uh, Mises also... Uh, talked about the attack on Western culture. I mean, that's, and you, know, you see them toppling statues of George Washington and, and things, and you know, sort of uh, high-tech book burning that we see today. Mises was there 100 years ago talking about this, almost 100 years ago. The attack on Western culture, he said, uh, people which have hailed with great enthusiasm writings which call for the destruction of all cultural values are themselves on the verge of a great uh, social catastrophe. So he's saying they're, you know, when they're, they're calling for the abolition of uh, religion, for example, they're, they're, they're waiting for a social catastrophe if we do that. And he said this, social art preaches it, 
schools teach it and the churches disseminate it. And that was in 19, you know, the early 1920s, uh, Mises is saying that. And it sounds very similar to, uh, very familiar to Americans, especially uh, when, you, when you see that. Now, now the methods of destructionism that uh, Mises talked about seem quaint by today's standards. And then if you read this section in, in his book, Socialism, you know, he's talking about labor legislation, minimum wage laws, maximum hour laws, compulsory social insurance, uh, social security, that, you know, this, these have all been studied to death. Um, social security, uh, you know, if the government says, well, we will take care of grandma, then uh, the incentive that creates is a lot of people will think, well, then I don't need to take care of grandma. The government's going to take care of her. And, and, uh, and so, and, or yourself, you save less if you think, well, the government's going to send me a check someday when I, when I, when I retire. Unemployment insurance. Uh, I blogged something on Lou Rockwell's website a couple of weeks ago because a co former colleague of mine at Loyola University uh, all the other economists, not me, but all the other economists, congratulated him one day because he had a journal article published in which he, it was an econometric article in which he argued that increases in the uh, uninsurance uh, payments and the length of uninsurance have no effect on the unemployment rate. So you can, you can pay people just any amount and they won't stay home uh, instead of going to work, you know, no matter how much you, you pay them. And I, and, uh, and I wrote sort of a snippy, nasty uh, email to all of them, and in the, in the, they didn't kind of like that. They, they, got, they were offended, poor babies, about that. <laughs> but, uh, but here's Macy's saying, yeah, unemployment insurance, you know. And, and of course, today, everybody knows it, that this is BS. I mean, I mean you, you go everywhere, like the, uh, <clears throat> the seafood restaurant. I, I live, uh, you know, five minutes from the ocean. And there's a seafood restaurant, it's high season for tourists, and they shut down on Sunday and Monday because they can't get enough kitchen help to keep the restaurant going. <clears throat> because why? You ask the, ask the manager, the wise reason is obvious, well, they're still getting these government checks, unemployment insurance checks, and it doesn't make it, you know, they do the benefit cost analysis. It's, it's worth, it's, they make more money just sitting at home taking the check than they can work, uh, working in the kitchen somewhere. And so, and that's pervasive now. So, I don't, so, that, so that's, Mises was talking about that nationalization of industry, taxation, inflation, and these are you know the, the tools of destructionism. The Communist Manifesto is, is sort of the really the manual for destructionism. If you look at the famous ten points of the Communist Manifesto, abolition of private property and land. Uh, well, the U.S. government still owns more than fifty percent of all the land west of the Mississippi. If you've ever been to Las Vegas uh, and you do what I do and you go to the top of one of those hotels where you can at night and you can see all the lights, uh, it's kind of weird looking because all these you know lights everywhere and then all of a sudden it's like it's like God wrote a line in the sand, literally a line in the sand, nothing, you know, nothing, and and uh, you, you gotta wonder, well, you know, housing prices are so high in Las Vegas, why doesn't somebody build a few houses out there? I mean, it's right next to it. Well, it's because that's all government land, and the government won't let them uh, build houses on that land. So it's in the government, I think it's like something like 80% of Nevada is owned uh, by the government. So we've got that. Um, uh, let's see, uh, a heavy progressive income tax, we've got that. Uh, abolition of all rights of inheritance. Uh, we have an inheritance tax. It's been cut in recent years in America, but there, there's always talk about bringing it back. Uh, confiscation of the property of anyone who criticized the government. 
uh, well, we don't do that, but we censor pretty well now, nowadays, don't we, in the, in the United States? So far, they're not confiscating your property. Centralization of credit in the hands of the state. Well, that was done in 1913, wasn't it? Centralization of the means of communication and transportation in the hands of the state. That's one of the things Murray Rothbard wrote about in, uh, in several of his books, including For a New Liberty, that the state always uh, tries to monopolize transportation and communications. And, uh, and you, you see that today when, I, when, I, when I read the news recently about Cuba, about Cuba, they shut down the internet uh, you know, so that the, the, the uh, Cubans who are protest finally a mass protest against the Castros and, the, and, the, and communism in Cuba, the first thing they did was shut down the internet in Cuba. And so all these Cubans in Miami now who are all crusading to get somehow to get our government in the U.S. to do something to bring the internet back. And so yeah, there you have it. That's, that's why government wants to, to monopolize communications so they can control communications. And of course, we're do, they're doing a good job of it in the U.S. as well. Uh, Peter Klein's going to talk about the economics of big tech. I don't know if he's going to talk about the, the fascist nature of it all. So in fascism, by the way, economic fascism, by the way, is the marriage of business and government. That's what it was. And what else would you call, uh, uh, you know, uh, Instagram and, uh, and Twitter and Facebook and, and their antics in, uh, in censoring anyone who disagrees with uh, the official state policy? That's what it is. The operation of factories and farms under a common plan. Well, that sounds like the U.S. Department of Agriculture of the state. Forced labor. Well, that's the income tax, isn't it? Uh, last year, uh, my former employer, uh, Loyola University, offered a buyout to senior faculty like me, and I took it. And they said, we'll give you two years' salary if you get lost. And since the place had turned into a, you know, well, I don't want to use bad language, but you can imagine what I would call it anyway. And, and, and I'm of age to do that. I took it. And so uh, my income was uh, two years salary plus a half a year because I worked for half a year. You know, I took it July 1st. And so I had a, a larger than normal uh, income. And uh, as a result, it put me up into a high tax bracket. And even though my tax accountant uh, works for some big corporate accounting and law firm, and they do a, a really good job. I, I think they actually inti intimidate the IRS with this big thing of paper. I'm, I'm a college professor, and they still give me a tax return, like a big thick tax return. So that they've never audited me. And, uh, but still, they still took maybe over 40% of my income. And so that means that uh, uh, basically I worked as a slave for nothing until May uh, just to pay taxes. And then from mid-May on, I could, I could maybe work for myself and, uh, and keep the money for myself. And so you know, the income, tax and income, income taxation is a form of forced labor. I was, I was being for, you know, if I, if I refuse to pay the income tax, you know, if I, if I wrote the IRS, IRS a letter, for example, and said, Dear IRS, I understand that you, 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 you think that the national parks are owned by the people. Well, I've decided to give back my portion of Yosemite you can keep it in lieu of paying taxes this year. You know, keep my section of Yosemite and Yellowstone for that matter. You know, that's that's a tip. You can have a tip. Keep my portion of Yellowstone. You know, I'll be I'll be in the Crowbar Motel, won't I? They'll, they'll send me they'll send me to jail for for doing it like that. Okay, abolition of the distinction between town and country. 
Uh, well, that's, uh, you know, the current administration in Washington is talking about trying to destroy the suburbs because there are too many Republican voters coming out of the suburbs. Uh, free education for all children in government schools, Communist Manifesto. So those, that's, that was the roadmap for destroying existing society by the Communist Manifesto. Now, what about today? If you fast forward more, more to today, uh, there's been a, a sea change in, uh, in the Marxist plot because what happened was the old class struggle theory where between the capitalist class and the, and the, uh, the working class uh, didn't really pan out. The Europeans didn't really accept that. Uh, the, the factory workers, all they ever wanted was better pay and working conditions. They never wanted to take over the factories and run the factories. They just, they just wanted a pay raise, basically, in, in the, you know, a cleaner workplace. And so they didn't, they didn't go for Marxism. You know, it was, it was forced on a big part of Europe at gunpoint for many years, but it wasn't. There was no working class revolution for for this stuff, and so the Marxists uh, had to change strategy. And now today they're called cultural Marxists, uh, led by such people as Antonio Gramsci, the Italian, uh, the Italian. Uh, and I mentioned in one of my talks that one good thing that Benito Mussolini did was put Gramsci in prison. That's, that's one uh, the one thing we should praise praise Mussolini for doing, and uh, and also uh, you know uh, Gheorghe Lukacs L U C A C S I think David Gordon told me it's called Lukacs as I he pronounced it, and, and others and others these were the cultural marks early 20th century, and they blame the failure the failure to adopt Marxian socialism in Europe on uh, two things Western civilization and Christianity. Uh, you know, if, if people believe that God is their sovereign, then Joe Biden cannot be your sovereign. You know, it's God. You know, God, Joe, Joe Biden. God, Joe Biden. What's, what's, who are you going to believe in? The same is true with the family. Your, your parents might, might interfere with the government's plans for you. They might even send you to Mises University or some other subversive insurrectionist institution like that. And we can't have that. And so, so we've got to abolish the family. Uh, as well. And Western civilization, you know, socialists, whether they call themselves fascists, socialists, whatever, they've always been fierce enemies of Western civilization, especially, especially liberalism. You know, if you read Mises' book, Liberalism, uh, and on, in some of my publications, uh, I, you know, I, I've actually read Mussolini's autobiography. It has a title, like if I was a third grade teacher and I gave the assignment to the kids, write your autobiography, I would probably get titles from some of the kids that would just write a title for it, like my autobiography. That's Mussolini's title of his biography, my autobiography. Not, not very catchy. You know, no, no commercial publisher today would probably think that would be a seller. You'd grab that off the shelf. And, and, but, but he's very explicit. I mean, he, he was very explicit in condemning... Uh, all the things that Mises writes about in liberalism. They know who the enemy was, the ideas of liberalism. It's not just Western civilization in general. It's, it's the ideas that have come out of Western civilization and the Enlightenment and um, the U.S. constitutionalism and, and so forth. That's what must be destroyed. There are too many Europeans, these guys said, who still believed in, in English liberalism. And so that had to be attacked first. That had to be destroyed first, these ideas. Mussolini said it, Hitler said it. The Russian communists said it at the same time. So they knew who the enemy was. The enemy was these ideas. Okay. 
<clears throat> and so <clears throat> uh, they had, they had a, a, a little success. Lukács himself is Hungarian, and the Hungarian, uh, the communists took over the Hungarian government in 1918, and Lukács became the Commissar of Culture. That's kind of a nice title. Wouldn't you like to be the Commissar of Cultures? Someday? I, I was on the radio for about 20 years in Baltimore with my old friend, the late Ron Smith. He was a radio talk show host. And he would have me on every, every few weeks to just talk about something. And uh, he, he gave me the title of Minister of Economic Truth. So that's, that's, that was my title for about 20 years in Baltimore, that people knew me as the Minister of a very Soviet Union-ish uh, title, Minister of Economic Truth. I'll make truth. Okay, but he came to the culture, commissar of culture, and one of the first things he did was to introduce sex education in the elementary schools in Hungary. And that, that was enough for the Hungarians to kick the communists out. So they were, they were gone. That, that, that did, blew up in their face. They, and, and Hungarians are still at it today, aren't they? They're still, they're still fighting this. Okay, they, so they established a think tank and they called it the Institute for Marxism. And that didn't pan out either too well either, because by this time, uh, Marxism was associated with Stalin and the purges and mass murder of millions of people. And so they, these guys apparently thought, what are we thinking, Institute of Marxism? So they changed the name and they called it the Frankfurt School. And so, you know, who the hell knows what the Frankfurt, it sounds like, you know, what do they teach people how to make hot dogs? What is it, <laughs> the Frankfurt School? So, but it was originally the Institute for Marxism. And so these, these, these people all fled uh, Nazi Germany and other parts of Europe and ended up in the United States. And many of them, uh, for some reason, they settled in Santa Barbara, California in the 1950s, which must have been one of the most beautiful spots in America in the 1950s before all the pollution and, and the congestion, traffic congestion and all that sort of thing. And they just hated everything. They hated life. They wrote book after book about how horrible life is in, in America. And, and these are people who left Nazi Germany. And they're, and they're writing books about how horrible Santa Barbara is in the, in, in the, in the 1950s as far as that goes, the Frankfurt School. And so they, they settled on their new theory, new class struggle theory. They decided factory workers weren't enough. You, you, you can't take over the government and impose communism just with factory workers. You need more. So they famously came up with a new theory of class struggle of the oppressor class versus the oppressed class. And the, the oppressor class is white heterosexual males, and the oppressed is everybody else. That way you have not just the factory workers, you have just about everybody except white heterosexual males. And even then, if you're a white heterosexual male and you're a socialist, you're okay. You're, you're okay. But, but I, I should say non-socialist white heterosexual males are the oppressor class. Okay, they denounced, you know, book after book, they denounced uh, traditional morality. They called it fascist. So if you're a religious person, you believe, you, you try your best to live by the Ten Commandments, you're, you're like Hitler uh, to, the, to these, these people. <clears throat> if you're interested in this, you should familiar, familiarize yourself with uh, <clears throat> Herbert Marcuse. He's one of the, the cultural Marxists. And his, uh, his famous, uh, well, some of the things he's famous for, he wrote a book ca called Eros and Civilization, where he championed, uh, and this was very popular with college students at the time of the 60s, as you could imagine, polymorphous perversity, he called it. And, he, and he, he advised college students, don't work, have sex. 
And uh, I went to school with some guys that sort of took that to heart and, and, and ended up uh, in, in my generation. He's like, you see why Marcuse was a very popular guy among college students in the 1960s, who, who, all now, who now all run all the universities, these people. Uh, but his, his more damaging, that was just silly, you know, ridiculous stuff, but his more damaging is uh, his theory of liberating tolerance. And th this is a thing that, that animates uh, what we see today going on on the college campuses when, when a conservative or libertarian shows up at Berkeley and they set the building on fire and, and, uh, and, and things like that. Uh, you know, what, what, you know, I've, I've known uh, Charles Murray, the political scientist, for 30-some years in the... And his daughter graduated from Middlebury College. And, uh, and so the political science department there invited him to come up and give a talk on his new book since they apparently knew some of them since he'd been visiting his daughter over the years. And he knew the political science faculty there. And his, he's, a, he's an MIT political scientist himself. That's his background. And so he goes to give a talk on his new book about the American work ethic, you know, sort of a labor economics thing. He shows up. And you know the usual mob sh shows up of screaming and yelling, calling him a fascist and a racist and all this stuff. You know, drowning him out. And uh, and the woman, uh, the female uh, political science professor who invited him, uh, one of them, one of these thugs, grabbed her hair and jerked it so hard that she injured her neck. They had to call an ambulance and bring her to the hospital. And then they left in, in a car, and they chased them through town in cars. They just literally fled, uh, you know, in, in cars out of, out of the middle, tiny little Middlebury, Connecticut, or Vermont, rather. And so, so that's the sort of thing uh, you see. Now, now I, I first got wind of this, you know, maybe 15 years ago. I had a student uh, who was uh, very uh, interested in hate speech. And, uh, and, uh, and, and, and uh, this is when I first got wind of the fact that college students have already been very very uh, educated pretty well in Marcuse's theory of uh, liberating tolerance. And his theory is basically that only the oppressed classes deserve freedom of speech because the oppressor class uses speech to keep the oppressed down. And so, uh, you know, events like this, you know, uh, I mean, we have all these white guys like me, uh, the oppressor class, and whatever we're telling you is probably um, we're giving you tools that you can use to oppress your fellow citizens, the oppressed class in, in whatever state or whatever country you, you come from. That's what we're doing here, according to uh, people like Marcuse. And so, so college students in America and elsewhere have been taught for many years now that you're taking the moral high road when you do things like this. If, if a Tom Woods or me or Charles Murray shows up at a university and you organize a mob to harass them and injure them and, and uh, you know, invite Antifa to come in and do their thing, you're taking the moral high road. You know, you're, not, you're not being a, a scumbag enemy of freedom of speech. Uh, and in academic administrators, uh, of course, uh, usually orchestrate a lot of this. That was my experience at, at my university where the top, the top administrators were cultural Marxists. And uh, when I it was a Jesuit school. When I first got there, the old priest, uh, Father Selinger, was a great guy. I published an article in the Wall Street Journal, and he, 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 uh, he took me out to lunch to thank me for doing that. And he would say things like, you know, our parents will read this, and they'll send the next sibling along to, to the school. So he was, he was very business-oriented. 
And then the newer generation takes over and, these, and they turn out to be a Herbert Marcuse worshiping cultural Marxist nut jobs. And, uh, and, 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 and that seems to, seems to be the characterization of a lot of uh, university administrators these days, an awful lot of university administrators. And so, so when you see these things, these, these, these uh, you know, setting, literally setting fires to buildings at Berkeley, uh, they think they're taking the moral high road. And because they want, they want to destroy these ideas. This is Misesian destructionism in action. Uh, my, my first, one of my first observances of all this and how things were changing was way back in the mid-1980s when, I don't know if any of the students have ever heard of this, but there was a, a protest at Stanford University led by uh, that great political philosopher, Jesse Jackson. And, uh, and, uh, and they were chanting, hey, hey, ho, ho, Western Civ has got to go. And so they wanted, they wanted to quit teaching about Western civilization. You know, when you teach Western civilization, you don't have to say that uh, Christopher Columbus was a great guy. I mean, if you could, you could teach pimples and all. You know, that's, that, that's the way to do it anyway. I mean, you don't, you don't teach everything about Western civilization was wonderful. You, you, you teach everything. And, but they wanted to abolish the teaching of what all together, get, get rid of it. And they did. And they did it at Stanford. I mean, uh, and I didn't pay much of attention at the time. I said, "No, that's another another attempted shakedown by Jesse Jackson. That's 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 how he uh, he made a living. Is he would threaten to uh, organize a mob to call, uh, say, Coca Cola a racist company unless they gave him Jesse Jackson millions of dollars uh, to his uh, his organization, which uh, which paid his salary, of course." And so basically extortion. I thought, well, they, they're, they're, he's picking on the universities now. He's going he's gonna, to he's gonna force Stanford to give him money to, uh, to, uh, to do this. So I didn't pay much attention to it, but that's what was going on. It was, this was, it was deeper than that. And then around the same time, there's another famous incident that, uh, that us old fogies like myself uh, remember as being sort of a, a hallmark or a, uh, the start of these things. There was a family from Texas who were all Yale alumni. And they offered to give uh, $20 million to Yale. They write a check for $20 million, give it to Yale, to hire a few more professors to teach courses in Western civilization. They thought, they, they apparently noticed that Yale had been phasing out the professors who taught courses in, about Western civilization. And so they said, here's $20 million to put in some endowed professorships to teach this. And there was a, sort of a mini riot on that part of the faculty and, and they, they complained so much that the university administration gave the money back. You know, they had already had the $20 million in the bank, and, and they gave the money back to the Bass family from Texas. And, uh, and, so, and so these things all happened by the same way. So this has been simmering for a long time. So when you see today, you see all these, uh, like over last summer, when you had all the riots in the United States, and it was very noticeable. You see all these, uh, these college kids participating in, in, in the riots. And then you see these uh, opinion polls saying that today's college students or people in their 20s, a majority of them prefer socialism over capitalism. Uh, uh, well, this, is, this has been going on for 30-some uh, years. This, and, it's, and it's infiltrated down to, uh, to the, the elementary school level. By now, uh, I have an article on Lou Rockwell's website today, sort of uh, partly based on my own history of this and, uh, and some observations about how, uh, uh, you know, people ask me sometimes, uh, since I taught for 41 years at universities, 
uh, what, what are some of the differences? In, uh, and I noticed when I first started that uh, the campus Marxists would always sort of latch on to a small number of incoming freshmen. They'd get oh, maybe 5%, something like that, and try to you know, get them to become like them. Become, you know, spend more of your time rabble-rousing and being a political activist on campus instead of going to the library and educating yourself. And they would always, so there'd always be this sort of this ragtag group. They, they, would, they would prey on the dumbest students uh, that they could find, uh, mostly education majors. Sorry about that, education major. Uh, but today, uh, the, today uh, I observe that you know, the majority of students coming in are already thoroughly brainwashed like this. So the professors don't need to do, they, they've had their work done for them in K through 12 already. And that, that's one, one big difference. And, and so this is part of the genesis of it. And it's all about destructionism, isn't it? The whole purpose of this is to destroy these same institutions that the cultural Marxists have been trying to destroy for 50 and 60 years. And they're succeeding. They're succeeding. Uh, who was it? Uh, uh, Mrs. Deist just the other day asked me uh, or commented at lunch or when we were sitting there, it seems like in the past year and a half, this has exploded, all of this thing. Well, this has been, it has been simmering for 50 or 60 years, and it has filtered down through education. That's why you have so many of the young people uh, behind it. And that's why it is more important than ever today for people like you to be here and learn these things, learn about Austrian economics and Austrian political economy, if we're ever going to have any hope of, uh, of countering this. It has to be countered with ideas. Uh, we can't... We can't in, uh, counter it with violence, even if we even if we wanted to. No, I wouldn't recommend that. You, know, you can't, uh, you know, pulling a gun on the government is the dumbest thing you could ever do, uh, for example. So don't don't think I'm advocating anything like that. Uh, but uh, but our ideas, uh, we have to we have to counter this every step along the way, and it's happened before. You know, I, I can you know, if I can think of some some individuals who made a big difference just by themselves. You don't have to convince the majority of the 330 million Americans of this. And one example I gave somebody the other day, one of the students was, uh, and it's popped into my head, you know, and it seems so bleak, you know, what can I do? Uh, well, at the end of World War II, when Germany was uh, a burned out mess, uh, Ludwig Erhardt, who was a student of uh, the Austrian school, was appointed by the authorities as a finance minister of Germany. And he went on the radio one day, on a Sunday, and the American occupation authorities, by the way, they liked the Nazi economic system. They kept it in place because it was pretty much identical to the New Deal. It was the same thing, New Deal, Nazi Germany, fascism. There's a whole chapter in my book, How Capitalism Saved America, about this, about how it was essentially the, the same thing. And so the American occupation authorities kept it. They said, oh, yeah, we like this. Let's keep these economic policies. Well, Earhart had studied uh, some of the Austrians. And so he went on the radio without permission and just announced no more price controls. He freed, freed up price controls all, all at once, all in one day. And it worked. That's what created the, the German economic miracle. You know, one man did this. And there's a kind of a funny story that... Uh, the, uh, the American general in charge, you know, stormed into Earhart's office and, uh, and, and said, you know, uh, my advisors tell me that this is a crazy thing to do. And Earhart supposedly said to him, uh, well, my advisors tell me the same thing. 
and, you know, his advisors. And, but he did it anyway. But he, but he did it anyway. And so, so you, one person can make a pretty big difference. Uh, and, uh, of course, you have to be the finance minister first. But who knows where, where some of you will be. And I think I'm going to stop there, and we have time for Q&A if anybody has questions or, uh, or high praise or anything like that. Uh, yeah, uh, uh. Five minutes. Uh, anybody have a question about anything? So, yeah, you mentioned uh, socialism has kind of been simmering in America, especially in Western civilization for the past 50 ish years. Would you blame this kind of explosion of, of socialism and Marxism on you know, internet politics? Socialists have places to find refuge online and they communicate with each other just, just as other hateful ideologies, such as Nazis and uh, supremacists. Uh, yeah, they've made they've made good use of that. Um, you know, about when the internet first, you know, in the early 1980s, when I, I bought my first computer, and there was no internet. Maybe there was, but I, the computers you buy didn't have internet. You, you had to buy a browser eventually. And when it first came about, there was a friend of mine, Dick McKenzie, Richard McKenzie, another economics professor. He uh, when he bet, I think it was Tom Hazlett. He bet. I forget who it was. He bet somebody that the, the overall effect of this, this internet, the new thing, they had a bet. One, one side said, it's going to be good for freedom. And the other one said, no, the state will take control of it and it will, it will control speech and it will be bad for freedom. And it seemed to be pretty good for freedom for quite a long time. But, but that's a good point you're making. Though, you know, when um, Peter Klein might address this too, he's given a talk on big the economics of big tech, big tech and that uh, it's become fascistic and that uh, the, the owners, the people who run the big companies, Google and so forth, are themselves socialists and totalitarians, and they're in bed now, so to speak, with the government. And so they're using uh, basically sort of de facto power of government to censor even the president of the United States, who they don't like, as far as that goes. And you know, they, they allow tyrants from all over the world to speak up on Facebook and elsewhere, but uh, not the politicians, you know, they, 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 they dropped Tom Woods, you know, for, for example, some, some of these platforms, uh, but, you know, some dictator, some African dictator in there, you know, or somebody, you know, he, he's okay, he's okay, he's, they leave him on. And so um, that's, that's my response. Yes, yes sir, somebody back up. So um, you were talking about how that socialists have been deconstructing the family and kind of uh, making more, um, I guess the best word to use would be like conservative kind of values, um, not popular and, and disgusted, or maybe the general populace disgusted towards them. How would you say is the best way to incubate uh, ourselves, our family members, and then eventually for many of us, our children, from you know this kind of um, corruption? Uh, yeah, you know, you, you probably have heard that uh, the founder of Black Lives Matter famously said well, one of our objectives is to destroy the nuclear family, mother, father, children. You got to get rid of that and because uh, we want to get the government to raise children. That's why uh, the, uh, the socialist ideologue Hillary Clinton wrote a whole book called It Takes a Village to Raise a Child. And the village, of course, is uh, you know the Biden administration, or you know that's the village. That's, that's, so that's that's the goal. That's the ultimate goal. And she was involved for many years in the 70s. 
she was involved. She was the chairman of the Legal Services Corporation in the Carter administration. And, and one of the things they were agitating then was sort of some sort of mandatory child care. So, you know, I mean, newborns being put in some sort of government program. And they've they, they always been agitating that, you know, if you, if you send your kid to public school at age five or age six, that's not early enough. We've got to get them at, at age one so that the parents are totally out of the, out of the loop in educating the kids. You know, that, that's, that's their, their pipe dream anyway. And, uh, and you know, what to, what to do about that is to be vigilant. If you're a parent, uh, pay, pay attention to this. Take them out of the government schools, for God's sake, uh, uh, first and foremost, and, uh, and, uh, and teach, them, teach them yourselves. I, uh, I was on a platform in January with a man who has 11 children, and he's a he's a very uh, serious Christian, and uh, and his advice was uh, you know have lots of kids and raise them the right way. <laughs> that's that's uh, that's that's the way to do. And, I, and, uh, and so uh, maybe maybe one more. We've got a few seconds left. This young man here. Uh, yeah. um, do you think that like the decline towards socialism is a natural byproduct of like a modern democracy? Or do you think that there's like a real chance of like preventing the decline of socialism even like in a democracy? Yeah, that's that's the theme of Hans Hoppe's book, Democracy: The God That Failed. That democracy inevitably evolves into into socialism, which it has, which it has. And I think uh, you know for years there was a debate between the minimal government types, people who you know, libertarians who advocated li limited constitutional government versus the uh, sort of the anarcho-capitalists. And uh, probably the biggest myth uh, that I can think of is the myth that you can control government with a written constitution. You know, they, you know and, uh, and, uh, it, takes, it takes a lot more than that. Uh, John C. Calhoun wrote a, a great book, this disquisition on government, why a, a written constitution is not enough. Not that we shouldn't have one, but it has. But who's going to enforce this? If you allow the state to enforce this constitution, well, they're eventually going to decide that just about everything is constitutional, no, no matter what. And that's what has happened. And you know, read one, read the Judge Napolitano's book on the Constitution in Exile. What is it? It was like uh, no federal law. What was it from 1936 to 1995 was ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. And that's, that's Hamilton's vision of the Constitution, by the way. Alexander Hamilton, after he denounced the Constitution as a frail and worthless fabric once it was ratified, uh, he, he spent the rest of his life uh, trying to undermine the Constitution by inventing such things as the implied powers of the Constitution. He was the first one to come up with the argument for how, the, how to pervert the Commerce Clause of the Constitution and, and so forth. And so, uh, but that was his vision of being a rubber stamp on just about anything the government would ever want to do, whereas his nemesis, Jefferson, thought the Constitution, uh, the government needed to be bound by the chains of the Constitution, he said. And Calhoun thought that uh, his solution was uh, that a state, people of a state or group of states ought to be able to, to, uh, to say, we are not going to obey this law because we think it's unconstitutional. And so nullification, basically, is what, what he was saying. So it takes more than just the written constitution. You can't, making speeches about the sanctity of the constitution hasn't worked. You know, we've, been, we've been at that for almost 250 years, and uh, I think that's enough proof for me.
That's a model. Good, good idea. Time is up. Uh, time is up.